Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Okay, welcome back to the Students of Surgery podcast series. And today we are sitting with Mr. Jerry Mayaba, attorney and partner at McRobert uh, Incorporated Attorneys working in the Professional Indemnity Department, which deal primarily with medical legal uh, cases. Welcome, Mr. Mayaba. Thank you, Martin, and I'm happy that you invited me to do the podcast with you. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. And today we're going to talk about medical legal principles. Yes, it's one of the bread and butter of our department. Um, Yeah, it's it's issues that we deal with every day. So let's get into it then. Why is knowledge of medical legal principles important for a doctor? Look, it is important that doctors are aware of medical legal principles simply because, as you might be aware, there's increasing litigation and doctors are not really autonomous islands in the sense that they need to now start including patients in the patient care. They also need to include other colleagues who might have um, separate expertise that they need in the treatment of their patients. It should be a shared decision making, which means that patients need to know and understand what treatment they're going to undergo and also take part in making a decision on the appropriate or even better treatment on the available options. Look, at the end of the day, good medical, legal, and ethic practice improves patient outcomes. What is medical ethics and how does it relate to medical legal practice? Look, if one looks specifically at ethical practice, you could simply say it's the correct thing to do. And put differently, it's what the majority do. And if one looks at, you know, as a doctor having to act ethically, that's the duty that you owe to your patients, and you always have to adhere to that in your treatment of your patients. If you look at the principles, you know, you're touching on the principles of beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, justice, honestly, and generally, you know, looking out for your patients and making sure that they can be safe in your hands and they can be taken care of um, under your treatment. Let's go through the principles. What is meant by beneficence? Simply put, it means you must do good for the benefit of your patient and on top of your mind you should always have patient well-being um, as the primary objective and then you should always look out to make sure that you can cure your patients. If not, basically look for improvement of the patient condition, but in a nutshell that, that is what it means. And non-maleficence? Look, it comes from the Latin maxim of primam non nocere, which means first do no harm. And that is basically what doctors are called to do. The patients might have suffered any harm um, before they present before the doctor, or the ailment itself might not be as comfortable to the patient. So as a doctor, you're not supposed to add on that by doing harm to the patient instead of helping them to improve or cure their condition. So what is primary there is that patient information or informed consent also is critical. Basically, you have to look at how much is adequate, is it enough, are you doing more, are you doing less. That is basically um, in the crux of, of, of the maxim. And then, what is meant by patient autonomy? 
Look, back then, most doctors used to believe that what they say and they do is right. And basically, patients have to listen and follow. They shouldn't take part in their treatment. But um, things have evolved such that patient has actually a final decision regarding their own health or otherwise. This is basically part of Article 6, which talks about knowledge, and Article 8, which talks about participation. And if you think about it, you would be, as a doctor, comfortable to proceed with treatment knowing that you have taken time to actually make sure that your patient understands what treatment they have to do or to undergo and also you have empowered them enough for them to can take a decision on what is the best course um, to take in their treatment. This comes from obviously making sure that we don't treat patients in a, non, um, in a paternalistic way which says the doctor knows best, better and also we don't assume a position of a surrogate decision maker um, which you know article 7 under consent touches on and you have other people that also can actually you know assist in taking decisions this can include spouses life partners and parents taking part of the decision-making in the um, treatment of the minor child. You've got also also child-headed families where an adult child can also come in and assist in um, the decision-making, likewise brothers or sisters in this order. But it is such that the patient themselves, if they are able to consent, they understand the treatment that they have to get primarily they have to make that decision, but it can also be assisted in that manner. So I guess the time of a, a doctor being a dictator is over. Gone are those days, and actually doctors should learn that skill of pausing a bit and taking their patients along with them and making sure that the most critical part, which is explaining the treatment, which might be difficult at times with um, language and also having to translate terms into maybe some other African languages but doctors have to try and I think if you can pass that hurdle it makes the treatment going forward very easier. I hear you. Communication. Communication. And the principle of justice? Look obviously our constitution makes provision for this um, access to health care and everyone within the constraints of what is available um, should have access to healthcare. We live in a democratic country where people can choose where to access healthcare, what type of, ex of healthcare they can access, whether they agree to undergo that kind of treatment and or not. And obviously, given the demographics of our country, we have to take financial aspects into consideration. And at the end of the day, all patients need to be treated equally. I may add here that one has to differentiate as, as well between an emergency and an non-emergency situation. We have had cases where an accident will happen near a um, private facility and our courts have ruled that you cannot turn the patient away on the basis of financial affordability. All you need to do is to stabilize and then make sure that they can be treated in a facility where they can afford treatment. And then lastly, honesty isn't really a, a traditional ethical principle, um, but we've listed it here. What does that entail? Look, it's, it's more of a good 
bedside manner, and it reinforces the trust um, between, you know, in the doctor-patient relationship. Um, patient would trust doctors more who tell the truth, no matter how difficult it is. You should never lie, even if the truth hurts. Patients should feel that the communication lines are open, they are able to ask questions, and the doctor will listen with an empathic eye, um, ear, and then also take time to try and as best as they can in a layman's language to explain the principles. So it is now becoming, I think it should actually form part of the traditional ethical principles because it's very key in the relationship and also in the treatment going forward. We supplied Article 7 and Booklet 1 of the Health Professions Council of South Africa in the podcast notes. With regards to these, what are the key aspects or elements of informed consent? Look, in terms of Article 7, it lists um, several core elements that are important for informed consent. It is essential, for instance, before surgery, before treatment, investigation and tests. And it touches also on the psychological effects, the pathologic changes and adverse events. The patient will also have to be informed of um, procedure and what it entails, the risks and benefits. And at the end of the day, doctors can also supplement this by giving patient information leaflets, which if it's an elective procedure, they can go home and inform themselves and come back and ask questions. How much information does an average patient retain following, say, maybe the first discussion of their treatment with their doctor? Patients who have to undergo a procedure, normally they only retain 10% of what the doctor says. Why? Because they are anxious about what procedure they have to undergo and whether it will actually assist in their treatment. For our listeners, is there any information that specifically pertains to informed consent? If one has regard to the booklet from the Health Professions Council of South Africa, booklet 1, it also discusses seeking a patient's informed consent and what the ethical considerations are. But I think it touches back with where we started earlier, Martin, to say that the more you empower your patients with information, the easier it is that you can then make sure that you obtain proper informed consent. And I may, I may add here that you know even the HPCSA is very much serious about informed consent. If you look at doctors that are arraigned before the professional conduct committees. When it comes to informed consent, the committees are very um, strict about what process doctors go through in terms of obtaining informed consent. Obviously, there is a balance in terms of what kind of situation you might have operated under, but if you had uh, the opportunity to take informed consent, it is expected of a doctor to make sure that you take time and take your patient along with you. In this way, you'll avoid a lot of things, litigation and complaints against you at the HPCSA. We've put booklet 1 and article 7 of the HPCSA in the podcast notes. I think now that we're talking about the, the Health Profession Council of South Africa, what are some of the key points uh, that the HPCSA provides in its guideline according to uh, informed consent? Yes, as I have alluded to above, um, in terms of booklet one, which talks about general ethical guidelines for the healthcare professions, 
healthcare prof professional, professional should firstly give their patients information that they ask for or need about their condition, its treatment and prognosis. And this is very important here because this is where we avoid the principle of the doctor knows it all and you have to share that information with your patient. You must give it to the patients in the way that they can best understand. Patients are different. As a doctor, you're going to have to either test in terms of the language, whether the patient is comfortable in a certain language, um, their level of literacy, their understanding, their values and belief systems. Most of the time, doctors might have to use a chaperone here where somebody can interpret for you in the language that the patient understands and you can get the message across. That will actually help you to get the patient informed and to obviously then obtain informed consent. In terms of informed consent, what else should doctors do? They should refrain from withholding information from their patients. The investigations, most doctors would like to say, oh, I'm protecting my patient, that's why I didn't tell them this. But you do need to tell them, as we said um, above on, on honesty, where we said, even if it hurts, the truth needs to be told. So you have to tell them about the investigations, the outcomes thereof, the planned treatment procedure, and obviously it should always be in the best interest of the patient. So here you have to apply the principle of informed consent as an ongoing process, as and when. I mean, you might have informed the patient about the procedure, but if you need to take bloods, you're gonna have to say to the patient, I'm going to need to take bloods, these are the reasons why bloods need to be taken and then obtain informed consent simply for that procedure of drawing blood. It is very important. I would like to pause here for a moment um, and just discuss a little bit more detail about taking blood samples from patients. Yes. Is that for all tests, so for example a straightforward full blood count and a kidney function or is it only for so-called sensitive tests like an HIV or a hepatitis test? Yes, thanks Martin. I'm glad you asked that question. The principle is that it's for all bloods. Remember, any um, blood that you draw from the patient, you actually are assaulting the patient. But I think what is critical to note here as well is that consent is an ongoing process and it does not necessarily mean that it always has to be documented. Maybe for sensitive um, bloods like HIV, you might need to be certain that it's documented and you can show it if you need to. But remember, you can draw blood for specific um, uh, purposes, but then something else is picked up that you didn't actually intend, um, you know, finding out. And if you didn't obtain consent for that, you might have a problem. But the principle is that it's for all bloods, and it always is safer, but doctors should always know that it does not necessarily always have to be documented and it helps them to do timeous um, treatment on the patient and then you're not boggled up with um, administrative issues of always having to sign paper. Great, thank you. What are the components of an adequate informed consent? Martin, the following are actually elements of informed consent. Um, it must be voluntary and without constraint, meaning that Consciously, we have to ask our patients, this is what needs to happen, these are the risks, these are the benefits, do you agree? And in the case of an HIV test um, and other sensitive tests, we may add, consent should preferably be written, although consent may be implied and it can also be verbal. 
Consent must not conflict with good morals or the constitution because remember everything the doctor what the doctor does should always be in terms of our public morals and should always adhere to our constitution. The patient must be capable of consenting. This is very important because you will find instances where, for instance, a doctor goes in um, to do one procedure and once they have opened up the patient, they realize, oh, there's an issue with an appendix, but they didn't get consent for that. And they might want to say, oh, I want to quickly deal with it because I'm helping this patient. But strictly speaking, you also need to get consent for that. The patient must give consent personally unless proxy consent is applicable. We will talk about that um, later. The patient should know why the medical practitioner needs the results of the test, which is why then it's important, as I said earlier, that for any test, we will need to get consent because even if we think as practitioners it's just a small routine test that you need to get blood for, but patients need to know why you do that. What must be documented on the consent form or in the patient's file? There should be sufficient information on the diagnosis, proposed treatment, expected benefits, risks, alternative treatment, probable results, etc. etc. It does sound cumbersome, but if you have laid a good basis with your patient where the patient has now the trust um, in you and they can see that you take them along all the time you need to treat them. What about patients that you're not convinced understand either due to language or cultural uh, differences? At the end of the day, the patient must actually understand that is basically there is likely to be a need for an interpreter or at least sensitivity that the patient may not actually understand everything and arrangements should be made so as to assist the process of understanding. But basically, common sense dictates that if the patient doesn't understand what you're saying, then they are unable to give you consent. But we should try by all means to ensure that we take them along with us and they should understand what we're saying to them. In South Africa, uh, what is the age of consent? In South Africa, we come a long way. In 1983, there was a Child Care Act which provided that any patient who's 14 years and older may give consent to medical treatment. Things have now progressed in that in 2005, we had a Children's Act 38 of 2005, which provides in section 129, subsection 2, any minor of 12 years and above can give consent to medical treatment. The HPCSA has documented in their booklets, if you look at booklet 4, that the child who is older than, who is 12 years and older, can also um, consent. Jerry, can um, children younger than 12 years old consent for a medical procedure or intervention? Martin, interestingly, um, the Act also goes further that you may find children that are younger than 12 years but they are of such maturity that they can understand what procedures need to be done and they can comprehend the law does allow you as a practitioner to say, well, I've interacted with this child, they understand what needs to happen, therefore they consented to the procedure. So one would obviously treat that with caution and involve the parents as well, but the law does allow you to, to do that. Okay, now my eyebrows have gone up. Who judges whether or not a child is mature enough if they are younger than 12 years old to make a decision about their medical treatment? Martin, um, I'm glad at least I could then 
keep you interested there. The person who actually judges that is the practitioner who interacts with the patient because there's several ways in which you can um, gauge whether the child understands what needs to happen. It will be their schooling, the type of education they're receiving, their acumen as you interact with them. I will give a simple example. If there's a simple laceration to be done, then it's something that if you were to say to the child, you understand why I need to do this and you know how it's going to help you and you have actually taken them through of the process and the treatment course, they can obviously um, consent. At the end of the day, there are more stringent procedures that might even create a dilemma between the practitioner and their ethical duty towards the patient as well as when do they need to involve parents. Can you give an example? I can give an example of a minor who, maybe in our case we can say is 12 years or rather 11 years, pregnant and you have interacted with them say in a course of three consultations and they are clear they don't want their parents to know about the pregnancy but they have made up their mind after you have informed them about all the options that they want to terminate. As a practitioner, if you are involved there and you have satisfied yourself that this child knows what they are doing and basically you are satisfied that they are making an informed consent, you can. Where possible and where you can convince the minor to say, well, I may need to involve your parents and they give you consent to you may need to do that, but the law does allow you and you are the judge of with the acumen of the child and whether they are matured enough to can give consent. Uh, thank you for that clarification. Um, what is the definition of a child in South African law? Um, if you look at our Act, or rather the Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, and then you align that with the Children's Act, the definition of a child is that it's a person under the age of 18 years. But obviously one has to differentiate between the legal definition of a child in general and the definition of a child when it comes to medical treatment, which is where the Children's Act of 2005, you can see it takes it a bit lower to 12 years. But strictly speaking, under the Act and our Constitution, it's anyone who's eight, uh, less than the age of 18 years. So am I correct in saying that any person 18 years and older may give consent to any sort of medical intervention or procedure on their person. A patient who's 18 years and older may give consent for any operation. They don't need to actually have anyone assisting them unless they are not corpus mentors who can actually make an informed decision. Then somebody else who's either a guardian or as we have listed above, a brother or any other person that's responsible for them can assist in giving consent. You've mentioned proxy consent. Please tell us what it actually entails. Proxy consent is when somebody else, um, other than the patient themselves, is capable or is legally entitled to give consent for any procedure or treatment that the patient needs to undergo. It can happen in many instances. Some people may, before um, an occurrence of any incident, already give proxy consent to somebody else to say, in a case where 
I'm lying in hospital and I'm not able to talk for myself. You can give consent on my behalf. But that is basically proxy consent. Do patients who are able to give their own consent have the right to choose a proxy to give their consent on their behalf? Patients who are well within their rights and rather their of sound mind to can make a decision, they can elect to give somebody else proxy to do it on their behalf. So practitioners might need to inquire. I mean, it will take one quick question. Are you the one who's going to give me consent or is somebody else going to do it on your behalf? Then you are able to ascertain that and then who is the appropriate person to deal with. Stepping away from informed consent, uh, we were asked about whether or not patients are allowed to have access to all of their own medical records. So let me pose you the question, are patients entitled to access all of their medical records? They need to be given access, obviously, with proper procedures where they sign either a consent form and then you can release it to them. They might even ask a third party to request their records on their behalf. You will then need to make sure that you have proper records of who you release the records to and whether you have all the proper documentation to can release to those um, persons. I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. Could you please recap the concept of informed consent and then maybe highlight some other important issues from the podcast? It's when you inform your patients about any procedure or treatment that they have to undergo, mainly dealing with the risks and benefits and making sure that they understand what type of procedure they are about to undergo and they can make an informed decision from there. We did say key to that is that consent might have to be obtained in the language that the patient understands. And what is consent, or rather who can consent, uh, we spoke about that. We spoke about minors of 12 years and above for medical treatment. And also we touched in instances where the minor might even be younger than 12 years bodies of sufficient maturity and acumen that they can consent to a procedure. Obviously one should thread carefully here and if possible involve guardians and or parents of the minors. We also spoke about interventions and treatments that require consent. General principle is that all and any other treatment that the patient undergoes, they need to consent to it. Obviously there are exceptions in terms of emergency procedures. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. With regards to the emergency situation and life-preserving uh, procedures or limb-saving procedures, how does the law perceive consent? Doctors have to act in the best interest of the patient and they have no time to can actually first source consent. And the law also says you as a doctor would actually make a determination to say had you requested consent, are you confident that reasonably it would have been granted? That is actually the call that the doctor should make. But in a nutshell, that is that. And basically, Martin, I think we touched on the good principle of treatment by practitioners of their patients and actually making sure that patients can be involved in their treatment and making sure that at least it's a dual and joint decision. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Joey, for a very interesting podcast, and we really appreciate your time, and I'm sure we're going to hear from you in the future. Martin, certainly I was um, happy to do this, and I've certainly enjoyed it, 
and I think all hope that it will be beneficial to the students. Thanks. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.